Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik, sitting here with Aaron Cameron. Day two of the Toronto Real Estate Forum. Believe it or not, there is several thousand people here. We've caught a nice quiet lull in the action in which, uh, in which to record, but uh, I know the rooms are packed right now with people trying to get advice for how to survive to 25. This is part of our speaker video series. I want to thank our sponsors, Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties, and Turner and Townsend. But most importantly, returning guest, Colin Lynch, Managing Director and Head of Global Real Estate Investments, TD Asset Management. Welcome back, Colin. Thanks for having me back. Great to be here. I was prepping Adam. I said, get ready for the most cerebral conversation we're about to have. <laughs> you have a reputation, Colin, of being a, a, a big thinker. Uh, so very excited about, uh, about this conversation. Wow, that's a high bar. Hopefully I live up to it. I'm sure you will. Colin's previous appearance in the podcast was in the, the depths of COVID lockdowns. I think his episode went up in December, so it been recorded in the fall of 2020. Definitely recording from our homes at the time. It's actually my first time meeting Colin face-to-face, so we're still having the, you know, the post-COVID adaptation to, uh, to new realities. Nice to meet him in person. We will put the link to that episode up in the show notes for anybody who wants to jump back in time and listen to that. But for those that don't do that, Colin, can you just jump into a bit of your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. I'll try to be brief, but I probably have the most unconventional background. I didn't grow up in real estate, even though my dad was in construction and spent his uh, career building all sorts of interesting things like helping to build a Pickering power plant and the Pearson, the new Terminal 1 and subways and Red Pass Sugars and all, all sorts of wonderful projects and the Mississauga City Center and the like. So that was me growing up but I spent a lot of time in music. And so I did music growing up. People thought I was going to do music for the rest of my life. I didn't. I uh, went into undergrad and I did do a music certification from the Royal Conservatory, but I did a BA in history and I did a BCom at Queens. And then I went off into Wall Street and Morgan Stanley. And there's some people in the industry today that I used to work with, mostly work for during that time. But everybody at that point thought I was going to go into aviation. And so I did. Why, why aviation? What was the, uh, the draw of the time? Because I was a little bit of an airline nerd. Okay. And still am. <laughs> and that's very precise. So less interested in the aerodynamics and the engineering of aircraft, more interested in the networks and the connectivity and drawing people from around the world and how airports work and pricing and marketing and all that stuff. So very much interested in the business of how this unique industry works. Why? Because it transforms our lives, right? This whole session we're sitting here today, we didn't have airplanes. I doubt we'd have all these people here, right? And especially on Tuesday, we had the global property market and people flew in literally from all four corners of the world. So it's just a transformative sector for the world, deeply unprofitable most years, but you know it is transformative uh, for a world. So I worked in it. I was uh, in McKinsey's global airline practice and I did that. Worked all over the world, lived many different places, and it was really fun. I did realize that working for an airline out of the office is no different than working for any other company out of the office. So, you know, so I had that realization and probably got the itch out of me and sort of came back a bit to call it a little bit of my roots, right, in terms of what my dad did growing up, different part of the industry. And also what we did a bit when I was at Morgan Stanley. And so I came back to Canada. I wasn't living in Canada. And the connection to where I joined, which was Greystone, was the former mayor, 
because I also had spent a lot of time working for different politicians in the U.S. and Canada, all for free. And, you know, joined this campaign of this person who had ran many times for many different things, couldn't get elected. But I thought at the time that his platform I most agreed with. And so I joined the campaign. He was polling 3% in January 2014. And in October 2014, he was mayor. And I was asked to work for him. And I said no. And when we went through that process, one of the people that worked for him said, hey, why don't you meet my wife? She's at Greystone. And that became the start of a year-long conversation about coming to work for Greystone, which I did. I worked for the C-suite of Greystone, did a bunch of things that were interesting. And after two or three years, I said, look, that's great. I have nothing to do. It's time to fire me because, you know, I'm a interesting approach. <laughs> and, you know, I can fire myself or you can fire me because, you know, at the time I didn't feel fully engaged. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. Instead of being fired, why don't you think about something else? And so philosophically, I said, hey, I can be on the management of an investment shop, which is kind of like front office of a sports team where I can go play. And hitherto, especially in McKinsey, you sort of are very focused on the management and et cetera. And I said, well, why not, why not go play? So hence moving into investments and working for Ted Walter. And that began in late 2016, the path that got me into eventually the role that I have today. Unorthodox. Work for free, they offer you a job, you say no, and then pivot to uh, <laughs> if I, I yeah. get fired. Yeah. Man, <laughs> they can't argue with the results though. This is a... And what are you doing today? Well, I have the privilege of leading our global real estate program. It is uh, circa $24, $25 billion uh, investments in just around 1,300 properties, 20 countries, 120 cities around the world. The majority of that portfolio is here in Canada, circa 300 properties coast to coast, uh, Newfoundland to Victoria. And uh, we have four offices from Vancouver to London. The UK and and uh, eventually we'll open another one uh, in Singapore, but we also have Regina in Toronto, and we have the uh, privilege of investing across all the property types, office, retail, industrial, res, across core value add opportunity with a variety of different partners uh, around the world, uh, over thirty of them. So that's the platform. How's twenty twenty three been for you? You know, very interesting, and you know, I think it is a moment. You know, when I began my career, I began it right in the last days of the leverage buyout boom and then lived through the entirety of GFC. And, you know, that was one heck of an experience, but I'm incredibly thankful for it because it gives you a lot of perspective on not all things last forever. And, you know, things can go from good to tough and tough will be followed by good. And so I think this is world today is in a similar dynamic and 2023 is part of that dynamic. So, you know, fortunately we have a global platform. So we saw, uh, beginning in 2022, uh, really in the UK, the beginning of this volatility that we're all experiencing. And we saw it filter through the Nordics and we saw it now. And then in 2023, we began seeing it really in the U S and we saw real numbers move quickly and they're still moving. And now it's here in Canada. And to me, it sort of proves a couple things, but for brevity, I'll say, you know, mathematics is a law. It's not theory, right? There's many scientific theories. There are few laws. So one of the laws is math. And so what we as an industry are experiencing is the power of that law, right? And then at the end of the day, if funding costs have been raised dramatically and investment bars has been raised because folks looking at 
all the investment classes from public markets to private markets, if the bar for performance has been raised, then the math, which is a law, will tell you that your investment parameters have to adjust. So that's 2023. And that's 2024. Do you find there's a lot of uh, resistance to that law? <laughs> we can resist as much as we want, but it's a law. <laughs> so just like I'll try to resist gravity. And you know what? You can. You can resist gravity. And we found ways to resist gravity called the airplane. And you can fly across the world for just about 18 hours. And then after that, guess gravity what? Gravity gets you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, unfortunate, but it is the reality of the law. It's a law. It's a law. Yeah. Which countries right now are those laws working the most against return, yield, goals? Yeah. Whatever you just achieve a success. I almost think of it like you can use either, you know, the sun rising and the sun falling, right? And as we look around the world, we sort of chase where the sun rises and the sun falls. Or you could look at it like, you know, different countries are airplanes and they're going to go through the storm. So put differently, where are we going through the storm and where have we gotten out the other end? We've gotten out the other end in the UK. And so therefore we're quite, we are very interested in investment opportunities where cap rates have adjusted 200 bips. The new and, cycle started there. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, we're seeing the net results uh, or signs of that, which are investors from around the world. You know, the London is a destination for investment from around the world. So when you begin seeing folks from around the world, from Asia, from the Middle East, from Canada, come back to a market, that's an indication, plus the adjustment in pricing, that there is an opportunity there. Follow the capital flow. Exactly. So we're seeing that. We're seeing that in the Nordics. We aren't seeing that yet in Germany, not so much in France. And I think in the, you know, in the U.S., there's pain, right? There's pain and, and there will be pain. And it won't affect all the sectors differently. And today, a lot of the sessions were quite apt about the difference between Canada and the U.S., right? The res sector in the U.S. is going to have more pain than we're going to have here. And that's just fundamentals, demand, and supply. Where folks are behind us are in Australia, where whether it was the growth of e-commerce, whether it was folks buying shopping centers, they were behind us. We sort of saw, hmm, there's an adjustment, and we were behind the U.S., Australia is behind us now in terms of the revaluation back to the power of math and the law, right? And in Japan, interestingly, when I was there a few weeks ago, you know, there are discussions. Yes. Is there a positive spread? Absolutely. Are funding costs very low? For sure. But if you're priced to perfection, guess what? If the Bank of Japan is expanding yield curve control and you see all of a sudden funding costs sort of move, then you know what? You have to relook at some of those values as well. Fortunately, I don't think that the path in that part of the world, Japan through Australia, will be as significant as the path that we will be on, and we won't be as significant as the path the U.S. is going to be on. You know, as lenders, and I've, I've made this joke so many times, but we like to dumb down real estate to the simplest forms of math. And part of that is because, you know, as a lender... You're not the equity. You're the you're at the bottom of the stack, and so you're you're taking on obviously less risk, and so you're not spending as much time doing due diligence as you would be if you were the equity. So often we just look at you know NOI, cap rate, mm. and value. Like it's this very simple formula, and of course we're lending, so we're lending on interest rates, and so we're always kind of looking at what that interest rate to cap rate spread is, and using that really as guidance for where we believe valuations should work out, and of course then that's driving our leverage points. How do you perceive that? It's a very simple form of math. And how does it equate across, because you just mentioned positive leverage. Is it the same around the globe? Because I, I, I'm curious, you just talked about a 200 basis point mm. change in cap rates in London. Mm. Is that 
because interest rates have risen by, risen by 200 basis points. And so that, again, that positive leverage has just floated up. And how does that work globally? Yeah, you know what? I, uh, I am a fan of simplicity. And in every industry, including real estate, we come up with very elaborate terms and we, and we're, you know, it's complex, right? So let's not do injustice to the complexity of our industry, but fundamentally we build and operate space and space is tied to demand and supply. There's a cost of building that space and you can choose to invest in that space or choose to invest in other things. So the mechanism, I would agree with your way of describing it. Right. And what's happened in London or the broader UK across different property types. So the similarity is what we talked about, right? When the Bank of England is raising rates quite dramatically to fight inflation, then guess what? The investment parameters have to adjust. However, take office, take London, the West End, the Mile, Canary Wharf, all in London, three CBDs. And you wouldn't believe that it's all in London because in Canary Wharf, you know, the world's ending and in the West End, you're paying over 200 pounds per square foot to rent, right? So the nuance is also important there. Have evaluation parameters adjusted across all three? Yeah. But who's really hurting in Canary Wharf? Why? Supply and demand. Lots of space in Canary Wharf, not a lot of demand to be there. And that's it. I think you can boil most things down to you know, some simple concepts and it's important because foundationally it's space. We inhabit it and it comes down to supply and demand. Which countries were best positioned to weather the current storm? Is there anything we can learn from it for the end of the next cycle that we're just getting ready to jump into? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I am a big fan of Canada. I lived in different places, worked in different places. I came back here. I do, so I'll preface with, I have an emotional attachment to this country because I think it's great. And one of the reasons why I think it's great is because of demographics. And why is the demographics great? Because we have a robust immigration dynamic and people probably live at peace with each other and they come from around the world. And we are able to attract talented people from around the world. And there is a waiting list of people to come to Canada because we have a great stable governance, not perfect, but we have good stable governments compared to many countries around the world. We have economic growth and we are importantly diversifying our economy and we see different sectors driving growth long-term. So that is a powerful tailwind for our economy and also for real estate. And we also have, because, you know, in the case of Toronto, the Green Belt, in case of Vancouver Agricultural Land Reserve, in case of Montreal, it's an island. But we have taken action in different places to prevent crazy sprawl. And back to supply and demand, if supply of land is limited and demand is growing, then that's broadly good. So that's one. Two is, yeah, we have had some excess in the States. You know, you think about residential building in the Sun Belt. There's some excess. You can, you can see it in the numbers. You can see it in the rent deflation now. So we, you know, look at warehouses and all the stuff under construction in the DFW complex and the Inland Empire. And you compare that to all the stuff under construction in Canada. Nowhere close. So do we do a better job balancing supply and demand here? Yes. Is it because we as an industry are more judicious? Maybe. But I would also argue that it's a little bit more difficult because we have more stringent permitting regimes and we have more natural boundaries to deal with, either natural or created. 
that restrict our ability to develop a lot of supply. Take housing, same thing. Yeah. Sometimes to our detriment, I was just going to say, right? I, I mean, we can get to a, we'll get to affordability because that is you know the top of mind in all conversations here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So then trying to answer the question because I didn't. <laughs> who does it better than us? That's hard. Well, are there lessons to be learned? Like, what's the yeah. what does the cycle starting look like? Like, is it is it rapid? Is it a, a flood of capital? Is it recompression of rents? I mean, or of, mm. of cap rates? Like, how does that? How's that? If we if if it's not twenty twenty four, it is twenty twenty five. Yeah, you know, other as you as you've added as you indicated, other areas around the world are ahead of us as yeah. far as this change in the cycle. Yeah, what are the lessons? Yeah, so I think on a couple of points, one we got to do a better job of looking around the world as Canada, right? We're a unique country, but we're not so unique that what happens around the world doesn't impact us. We look at the States a little bit and that's about it. Yeah. yeah. You know, divide, divide everything that happens there by 10, go, yeah. that's what happens here, right? Like there are other countries in the world and they go through things. So you could have seen this coming, right? And it started with the UK, but you could have seen this coming a year ago and you could have seen the significance of what was going to come a year ago. So we got to do a better job of that. And that applies also, for instance, CSG, right? Like, look around the world. Look at what governments are doing. Look how the industry around the world has had to react. Look at the impact on capital values. So we're not here in Canada on an island disconnected from the rest of the world. I think if you said brown discount to some people, they'd have no idea what you're talking about. The UK is another good example with their EPC ratings, right? Everything has to be an A and B, believe by 2030. So explain on that, just the, what that means. Energy performance, uh, certification. So don't quote me on the C, but effectively it's a, it's a measure of energy performance. You go buy a house, it's rated today. You buy apartment building is rated. You buy a build office building is rated. And people won't pay for those that are rated lowly. Like it's, it, there's, it's, you, they you lose your, your value goes down. Yeah, that's right. Because it's got, you know, the UK government has said it's got to get to A or B. So if you're buying a C or a D, you gotta spend money. So therefore, you, you, why would you pay more today knowing that you have to spend the money to get to the A and B, right? And it's not just the UK now. There's, you know, we did a deal in Finland, same thing. We have ratings. So it is factored into the capital markets. But somehow, that's not going to happen in Canada, according to some. And despite, you look at nearly like every ever, government. Like not a lag, just it's not coming to Canada? I think there's some people that... I think it's less and less, fortunately, people that would sort of believe that we're not, you know, somehow going to have to really adjust for that. But I would argue that even in capital markets transactions today, we're not really accounting for that, right? So just listen to the politicians, right? Everybody's talking about net zero. 2050 is the latest they're talking about, right? You know, some talking about 2040, some talking about 2035, and the urgency to get progress in 2030. So... If all these folks are talking that way, and by the way, they control the levers, they're in charge of the government, then why would real estate not have to respond? Just given the significance of the role we play in society, doesn't make sense in my view. So we have to do a better job of looking around, right? Around the world. And, and also we, you know, if you looked at inflation a year ago, and yes, it was going to be transitory. And I think actually it is transitory. With how fast it came down. Yeah. yeah. But, it, you know, I think you go so back Transitory is not a quarter or two, right? It's a year <laughs> or two. That's right. And I think we all believed in 2021 it was going to be a quarter or two, right? And we also, by the way, believed that rates increased. So immediately, all the impact of that rate is felt through the economy. 
right? And I think perhaps that's because we got used to the speed at which things happened in 2020. Things happened super quickly. So therefore we thought, oh, BSC raises rates 50 bits. Oh, we're going to see this in the numbers the next quarter, right? It doesn't work that it way. It takes so 18 months for it to be really impactful. So we sort of forgot that. Which we're still feeling. I mean, let's not forget, like the, 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 the major increases was only 12-ish months ago. And on average, it's 12 to 18 months before those impacts are actually felt in the economy. So we're just feeling it now, really. That's right. And Benjamin Tall did say yesterday, he's like, you may not hear it or feel it, but we're in a recession. It, yes. it is. It's, it's here. Per capita, we're in a recession. That's right. Well, the numbers from Stats Canada are out today. They revised the April to June ones with the, the Q3 numbers would indicate, hey, yeah, no, growth wasn't so good. Actually, it was negative. So... Yeah. We're here. It's here. Yeah. Let's finish on geopolitical risk, and then we're going to mm. go go micro, go a little bit into more of the Canadian fundamentals. And, and of course, we'll, we'll talk about the Black Opportunity Fund, which, which I know is something that we talked about a couple of years ago. I want to hear about an update. Geopolitical risk, I think we've talked about it at large. When you're looking for investments around the globe, how big of a factor is that? I mean, you talk about math. That's a very difficult thing to pencil into a to an equation. Yes. How does that work? For multiple wars, how do you put that into a formula? <laughs> yeah, it's really hard, right? Crystal balls, uh, I wish I had them. But even if I did, mine would probably be uniquely foggy. So <laughs> geopolitical risk cannot be ignored, right? And I think that point is very obvious today. We choose to invest in developed countries with rule of law and stable regimes. And those two factors produce certainty. And when you look at countries that experience dramatic inflation, which erodes currency, which impacts an investor starting out from Canada, you know, if I just stop right there to say nothing about the certainty of owning your property in 20 years, if you aren't factoring that in, there's a problem in my view. Then you get to, there are things that have transpired that, you know, if you look at the unfortunate reality of the invasion and now war in Ukraine. You know, Russia was posturing in different places over periods of time, including in the Ukraine. Today, we've got geopolitical risks. New, well, not new ones, but emerging ones. And you can think about the Asia Pacific, and you can think about the you know, Taiwan Strait. So if you aren't thinking about that when you're deciding to invest and the implications of different things that can happen, and by the way, the speed at which things can happen, then I would argue you're doing a disservice either to yourself or to your investors. You have to think about it. And so, yes, it is, it's fundamental. Can you, can you precisely quantify the probability that something's going to happen in 12 months? No. Or in five years? No. But there are things that we all know that are out there and that are on the horizon. In addition, you have some markets where, you know, governments play a very significant role. And real estate is part of the role that the government plays. You know, whether it's a creation of a global center for tourism or talent or whatever. And the net result is back to supply and demand. If the government's going to create a lot of the supply and it's motivated by different factors, then as a pure private investor that is oriented towards profit, is that a market I'm going to prioritize to invest in? Probably not. So geopolitics is important. And if you aren't looking at it, Unfortunately, you're in you're in a lot of risk. Isn't it one of those things where if there is any uncertainty of, of what the future holds in that particular location, it's just there's a no-fly zone? Because you're deploying a meaningful amount of capital. And if there is any uncertainty, then it's just not worth. So there's going to be an election in the U.S. And there's debate 
in the halls today as to, you know, who's going to be on the ballot. And there's people, I had a debate late last night about that. Right. And so there's questions about who's Trump on the and ballot. somebody, we don't know who. So some, yeah, <laughs> correct. Right. <laughs> so, um, somebody's uncertainty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But if, if we have a change in administration, I would, I would submit that there is significant differences in the current sort of policy direction of the U.S. government versus a potential future policy direction. So there is uncertainty. But does that mean, yeah, the U.S. is an uninvestable country? I would argue no. And for a variety of different reasons, right? But one of those reasons is fundamentally you have rule of law and you have a constitution and you have the certainty of, you know, freehold title to land, right? And for real estate investors, that's important. Plus you have reduced concerns about inflation. Um, we and, are the largest economy with 350 million people right, <laughs> conducting is, their business that, again, you're building walls for humans to participate in, right? Like however you want to frame it. Live so, in, uh, play in, work well, in. They're going to they're they're need walls, yeah. right? Walls and, and roofs, no matter however you structure it, right? And last time I checked, there's still the reserve currency of the world. Yeah. But there is uncertainty, right? And there'll be a lot of uncertainty. But, you know, you can you can understand that uncertainty and think about that uncertainty and get yourself through that uncertainty, right? But there's places in the world where you can't do that. Well, to, to draw maybe an over-under on you know, where you would versus not invest, is there any countries you're looking at that are almost investment-ready on the cusp of kind of crossing over that line where you'd have enough certain uncertainty to <laughs> deploy some capital? So put differently, where are we not today that we could be tomorrow? You know, certainly we are not invested in Chile. I used to work down there, which uh, you could see us being invested in there in the future. So that would be the closest. We aren't invested in India. I know a lot of people have been looking at India. Some Canadians are there. Well, their growth profile is incredible. It is. Yeah. India's, however, historically had trouble with inflation. And so, again, you got, you got currency and you can hedge. Hedging is not free, though. Hedging subtracts from your returns. So that growth profile needs to compensate for some of those costs. But India is an interesting market. You know, it's a very thriving market. It's a growing market. It's a young market. It's, it's a lot of people. Yeah. There's a lot of people. I mean, it's just, it's just scope of their scope and size of that economy, that potential, right? If, if we even put it that there's, way. There's converting to middle class. I mean, an incredible volume of people mm -hmm. that creates. But the uncertainty is, is it going to, is that, are they going to be able to do it? Are they going to do it without avoiding, you know, certain lapses, the inflation risk? I mean, um, there, there is an absolutely political risk, right? That's not a terribly stable, you know, democratic situation. There's a, there's 130 states that would argue that it's not right. Like there's, it's a, yeah, it's very complicated. There is a lot going on. And so in addition to that, you have to know who the players are from a real estate perspective and how they conduct business and do you conduct business in the way they conduct business. So the point I'm making is there's a lot of work one needs to do to really understand who's who in that market. It's a bit different than, for instance, going to Australia, where A, there's a lot of Canadians there, B, it's a common law dynamic, and C, the way, you know, it's a very transparent market. So transparent, you can be down there and everybody knows you're down there before you realize they know that you're down there, right? <laughs> well, there's not even language barriers either if you want to go down that route, exactly. right? Exactly. So. 
So let's just jump into the Black Opportunity Fund, just yeah. to make sure we get we cover that. It Maybe. was it was brand new. I think last time we spoke with you, Ernest Ernest Infancy, mm-hmm. you got to structure your raising capital. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was that was almost oh, it was three years ago. A lot of progress since uh, we became a registered Canadian charity, and that's not an easy process for those that interact with the CRA. You know, they do their diligence and it takes a lot of time. So we did that. Uh, we raised tens of millions of capital and, you know, TD was a big uh, contributor to that, uh, $10 million, office space in the TD center, seconded employees each year for five years, but not just TD. We raised money from RBC, from CIBC, from BMO, from National Bank, and from about 35 other corporations and hundreds of individuals. We have more importantly done things. So we had a program with uh, Meta. Facebook, where we funded 54 digital businesses. We had a program with DoorDash, very successful, where we funded food entrepreneurs. So successful, we're doing it again. We had a program with Walmart and with the hospital for sick kids. And if you have sickle cell, in every children's hospital now across Canada, we have funded treatment the way that you take the pills. They're called pill crushers. Uh, We also have a patient amenity fund for families of kids undergoing sickle cell treatment. We have funded charities and nonprofits across education, healthcare, focused on arts and culture and criminal justice. We're going to do another uh, round of funding in February, March, but that's great. Plus other things, we have scholarships. We're having a big celebration event December 1st. We convened people during the depth of COVID. We had Dr. Teresa Tam addressing the community on, on health. And, you know, there are folks that have had poor experiences with healthcare and who are especially if you think back to the vaccines, and that's all we were talking about in 2021, who wouldn't take vaccines because they didn't trust the manufacturer, didn't trust the doctors and physicians, and didn't trust the hospital system. And I don't blame them because they had poor experiences. And so we convened hundreds of people from across the country and brought physicians and brought researchers to help convince people to at least look at some of the evidence behind vaccines. So we did that. We are working on today a venture capital fund. We raised the C capital, $5 million from National Bank for that. And so we're preparing to launch that. We are working earnestly on helping to address the affordability crisis in housing and helping to get more people housed. Particularly if you look at the black home ownership rate in Canada, it is incredibly poor. And what is the number one driver of household wealth? Home ownership. So that's significant. We have refugees sleeping on the streets and dying. So we're also helping there and funding initiatives to to help those refugees. Now, I would say it is great we as a country federally roll out the welcome map and welcome refugees from all around the world. It is abysmal that we don't connect that with the provinces and municipalities that actually have to house the refugees. So it's a shame that people are dying on the streets. So we either don't bring people in the country or if we do, figure out how to house them and transition them to be productive, contributing, economically members of our society. So anyway, we were working on that and we're working a lot more things in terms of the federal government, variety of different programs, but all to say for the over 400 people that are volunteering their time and we have a staff complement of close to 10 now, full-time staff, we're growing, we're doing very much beneath the radar screen, but most importantly, we're helping thousands of people. How can people get involved? Blackopportunityfund.org, social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, et cetera. You can reach out to anybody uh, through the website. You can reach out to me and I'm happy to direct. Craig Wellington is the executive director. We have a full board and lots of people, but folks can reach out to me, but the website is great. And it lists all of our funding programs, you know, and we're very transparent. 
We want everybody to have an opportunity to get funding, which means the programs are enunciated, announced, clear. We have people, when we gave money to education charities, I'm not the one that gave out the money. I ain't read the applications because I don't really know much. Mm -hmm. It's not my area of expertise. So we bring in people that know education to review the applications and determine who do we fund, not me. And that's how it should be. And so when I talked about more than 400 people from across the country, a lot of those are doing that. They are reviewing applications. Applying their expertise. Exactly. Do you find it overwhelming? There's just so much to do. Because that's a lot in three years. I mean, you ran that off. Everything accomplished in the last few years. I mean, very significant partners between, you know, Meta and Walmart. Those are definitely names that everybody knows. And you mentioned 400 volunteers. It kind of kind of makes sense. But that's uh, that's a, a unbelievably large circus to try and corral. And volunteers are difficult to corral. You know, it's... Uh, well, look, it's not all me. And it's not even majority or even a big minority, right? It's a big team. And we all sort of do different things. But it's not about the team. It's about how we help people. If it were all me, it would be impossible. What gives me a lot of joy is that people, we had a great discussion with LCBO who approached us and says they want to do a program too. And so every time that happens, that gives me a bit of energy. Yeah, do I work more than five days a week for sure? And does my business life and my leisure life blend together? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And does that create boundary challenges for sure? But at the end of the day, what energizes you is that you can actually make a difference and have an impact. But there are 400 people. And that's the point. It's really not about me or about anybody on the board. It's not about Craig, not about Ray, who's the chair. It's about making impact. And so if we can leverage the 400 people and put them all to work in different things, we can collectively do it. Are we going to solve all the world's problems? No. But we'll at least make some good progress. You're making a difference. Yeah. Yeah. We're out of time, unfortunately. Colin, thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure, as always. What a great conversation. Looking forward to having you back on already. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Of course, thanks to the forums for having us here at uh, on day two at the Toronto Real Estate Forum. And of course, thanks to Dow Vukovic, ML Emporial Properties Limited, and Turner and Townsend for sponsoring the speaker video series. But again, thanks, Colin. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where we talk about the conversation with Colin Lynch that we just had. You know, I set it up as a very cerebral conversation, and uh, he was very cerebral. He delivered. Yeah, it's fun to think about real estate in that way. I mean, he's his brain's operating at an RPM level that mine doesn't get Well, he, went on, he yeah. went on to the aviation angle, and, and if you remember yeah. the last time when we talked to him about real estate and, and so part of his success and what made him kind of gave him the ability to kind of do what he does, he talked about how he had that uh, history degree and how he looked at everything in a historic perspective and was comparing mm. things through the lens of 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, and you know how cities are built over decades and centuries and didn't even go there this time. Yeah. <laughs> well, instead he talked about you know the connectivity of the planet, which if you are running you know head of global real estate investments, you have to think about global connectivity as it relates to real estate on a daily basis. I mean, I will admit that, you know, we're a Canada only lender. And of course I do think about, you know, global impacts on real estate, but not, it's not on an hourly basis. You know, mostly I think about, well, what's going on in Vancouver today? What's going on in Calgary today? So maybe that satisfies that urge for his to think about the connectivity of the planet. Cause that's what he identified as being an attractive part of uh, his aviation interest. I uh, was not the, you know, the mechanics of air flight. It was the connectivity. So maybe that satisfies that urge he has for that, uh, for that passion. I found it interesting, the, uh, the conversation around different markets and the risks and the geopolitical risks and can never be 100% certain. And I just made the, well, if you're not certain, then you, you shouldn't just invest. And he kind of said, well, yeah, but think about the USA, right? There's lots yeah. of geopolitical risk, but everybody invests in, the Ameri- in America. 
Yeah. I, I don't know if there's another example, though, yeah. <laughs> of, a, of a country that can have that big of a, a internal shift and uh, still be a super attractive investment market. Yeah. yeah. Is concepts of the laws of math. I love it. I love it. It's just math. Good. How many times yeah. have we said that? At yeah. First National, we talk about that all the time, right? Where we're yeah. debating whether a loan makes sense or whatever, it, you know, at the end of the day, yeah. it's just math. <laughs> But you did allude to the fact that maybe some of the math we do is pretty simple. And there's somebody at First National who's got a math degree from, I think, Waterloo. Some are very impressive. And uh, he's new to the company. He comes by my desk and says, uh, you're underwriting mortgages. So, yeah, I do. He goes, well, the math you do, like, how complex does it get? You know, I've got a math degree from Waterloo. I go, man, like, <laughs> the math at the level we're doing it, you, you would not need to have the credentials that you have. That's, that's yeah. bringing an elephant gun to a mosquito hunt. <laughs> yeah. And, and. You don't even really know how to do it because the spreadsheet that's provided, yeah. you actually just know how to punch in numbers. Doing, doing all the pluses and minuses for you. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I know there is levels to what you can do with the intensity of the math around real estate, but for the most part, I mean, you know, look at most investment performers. It's just getting NOI divided by cap rate and here you go. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's discounted cash flows and there's all sorts of different things and the assumptions you have to make it. Uh, we know that you can, you can go down rabbit holes, but we, we, yeah, garbage in, garbage out. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, not the math's fault, it's just the garbage in. And we touched a little bit on some of, uh, you know, the, the other markets he's in, uh, India was an interesting conversation. I only say that because a good friend of mine runs an India fund. So I've gotten the pitch on why, you know, why India is just going to be this powerhouse over the next uh, couple of decades. So I didn't want to, you know, <laughs> spend too much time talking about an investment market this far from, uh, you know, the Canadian market, of course, we're focused on. But if my friend that has the India fund is correct. How much did you invest? I have zero to date, <laughs> but I, I have been tempted. I, uh, yeah, no, I mentally have bought into it, just not financially bought into it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Can to get boss approvals from that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's it for uh, our Colin Lynch conversation, and I look forward to seeing everybody in the next podcast. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.